Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, May 17th, 2011, and our special guest is Mark Fenske, the author of or co-author of The Winner's Brain, Eight Strategies that Great Minds Use to Achieve Success. Mark, welcome. So glad to have you here. Thanks, Steve. Glad to be here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Uh, we also appreciate the support we get from Learn Central and Illuminate, now Blackboard Collaborate. Coming up, we want to make sure that you are aware of EduBloggerCon. This is the all-day unconference. It's free. Held in, uh, held in Philadelphia just prior to the ISTE conference. This is a really fun and great event. You do not need to be registered for ISTE to come. It is in the Pennsylvania Convention Center. That's June 25th, 8 to 5 p.m. We have a lot of really fun things we're organizing, including what we think we're going to call the Keynote Smackdown, uh, short presentations by uh, many people who give keynotes to give sort of a short overview of what they talk about. I think you'll find that a lot of fun. Uh, there's also obviously going to be the Bloggers Cafe. If you've been there before, you know this. And something called ISTE Unplugged. I think this is our third year with ISTE Unplugged. Uh, if you've never presented before or have something to present that didn't get into the program, you can do so live there at our ISTE Unplugged session. We've also announced the dates for the 2011 Global Education Conference, five days in November, 24 hours a day. Uh, this was a terrific event last year. It should be just the same this year www.globaleducationconference.com. Sure look forward to having you there. Coming up uh, on the future of education on Thursday, Chris Guillebeau on the art of nonconformity, his book, a very popular book. Then next week, Steve Denning on radical management and Sir Ken Robinson on the revision of his book, Out of Our Minds. Uh, May 31st, James Bosco asks, is there participatory learning? That should be fun. Uh, then we have an unschooling panel, Cal Newport on his book, How to Be a High School Superstar. Uh, and then, Mark, you should enjoy this. We have the authors of The Invisible Gorilla coming on, part of my series on cognitive issues. Anyway, lots more on that schedule. Were you going to make a comment there, Mark? No, just saying that's uh, yeah, a great lineup of people, especially uh, the Shabri and Simon on The Invisible Gorilla sounds great. Oh, good. Well, it's a personal interest of mine, which is why you're here. If you've missed the show, they're all recorded, including our show last week with Paul Kimmelman on the School Leadership Triangle. Fascinating show. Um, Paul's not that well known. Uh, does uh, kind of a balance himself between educational reformers and the legislators. A fascinating take on uh, educational reform and what we should do at this point. Hugh McGuire on their on just a lovely project, LibriVox the crowdsourced recording. He doesn't use the word crowdsourced, I use that, but his volunteer recording efforts. Uh, and then we have the passion panel. Uh, lots more, all of it up on futureofeducation.com in full Illuminate recordings and also in MP3 formats. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is participative. I won't show you all the tools, but I will recommend that you go up to View Layouts, switch yourself to the wide layout. We have some repeat listeners who can help you out if you run into any problems. But in the wide layout, it is easier to see the chat. At the bottom of the participant window, you'll notice some emoticons, smiley face, clapping hand. The hand with the green up arrow is how you'd raise your hand to take the microphone. You'll be asking for the microphone. We'll give it to you to ask a question if you have one for Mark. Um, I'm going to give you permissions now to modify the whiteboard. And you can let us know where you're listening from. 
click on the wad, that's the stick with the red star at the end, and then click on the map. Feel free to also shout out in the chat. For those of you who are listening to the audio recording, we'll tell you some of what comes up. Phoenix, Arizona. Looks like a couple in New Zealand, Australia, Fayetteville, North Carolina, Brookfield, Wisconsin, Melbourne, Fort Wayne, Wellington, Omaha, Nebraska, Spencer, Indiana, Auckland, wherever you're listening from or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad to have you here. Lots in North America. And if you're in rainy Northern California, you know what I'm talking about. So, Mark, again, really appreciate your coming on. This was a fascinating book for me, and it's part of sort of a larger set of reading that I've been doing on kind of where we are in terms of cognitive science. The book reads more like Dale Carnegie than it does a scientific book. Why did you make that choice, and how do you think it's helped kind of com communicate the message? Well, I think an important part of what we're trying to do with The Winner's Brain is to make some of the latest neuroscience findings accessible to the, to the public at large. Uh, you know, with the advances that we've had in technology, especially in things like uh, magnetic resonance imaging, our ability to really get glimpses at the, the healthy functioning brain for the first time, you know, getting some information that really we've never been able to get before. Uh, and to be honest, I'm so excited about the things that we're finding, and it comes a point where you're like, well, you know, we need to let everybody else know about this. And one of the fundamental challenges as a scientist is to be able to take your work and to translate it and make it accessible for other people. And so that's really what we're aiming for with the winner's brain, and uh, I'm happy to hear <laughs> the comparison. Uh, you know, one of the, the marks for me, sort of personal pride, was uh, my dad took a look at the manuscript shortly before we sent it off the final, and he said, Oh, you took a look at it and said, oh, this is amazing. It's the first time you've written anything that you've written that I've actually been able to understand. So that was a, a, a great stroke for me in terms of being able to really communicate with everybody else. It felt to me like a lot of the messages in the book, and we'll drill down on them, very much reflect some of our cultural sort of institutions or um, stories that we tell ourselves or, or ways of doing things, the cultural and religious traditions. Um, how much did you find that the brain is reconfirming common sense, and where did you find that common sense was wrong? Well, I think in some of the things when we talk about common sense, um, you know, things like when you look at self-regulation or emotional regulation, um, certainly we know, you know, for, for ages that uh, people have talked about the value of discipline and the value of um, hard work. And that certainly comes through in, in the research that we, that we looked at for the winner's brain. Uh, bottom line, when it comes to improving ourselves, when it comes to becoming successful, and that's really what the winner's brain is about, is each of us having our own objectives, our own personal goals, and what are the things that are going to help us to achieve those goals. Um, and, and it doesn't come easy. So it takes that hard work. It takes that dedication. Uh, so in terms of common sense, that act, you know, absolutely makes sense. There's nothing particularly new there, but I think it's important to remind ourselves of that message. Uh, when it comes to where common sense uh, maybe falls a little bit, um, I think in, again, something like self-regulation. 
you know, for years we've thought that people who weren't able to, you know, control their emotions, who weren't able to, uh, you know, uh, put off eating that delicious piece of cake in order to, you know, fit with some objective that they want about eating healthy or exercise. Uh, we've, we've looked at these as lack of willpower, as though it's some sort of uh, moral defect of character. Uh, but really, by learning a little bit about the brain, learning about how things like self-control and self-regulation work, uh, then not only are we able to understand those situations in which we have failures of that, uh, but we can also see ways in which we can each do better and improve our ability at self-control and, uh, and not going for that immediate gratification, putting that off for longer-term goals. I was interested in the degree to which tying uh, specific behaviors and practices to the brain, to thinking of the brain as a muscle rather than set like bone, um, that it uh, put it within the context of not looking for silver bullets. So um, do you see that? Do you see that we often sometimes look for ways to kind of improve in performance or make things better without going through the hard work? Well, I think that's what we would all like. The you know we have this natural aversion to hard work, and you know I've I've actually written about that a little bit too. Why is it that we always want the easy route? And part of that is the way that we've evolved. You know we don't want to expend unneeded energy, and you know historically through evolution there's adaptive benefit to that. Uh, so we want the easy fix, but it's important for us to realize that the easy fix isn't what's going to make the difference, especially when it comes to things like neuroplasticity. And I think that's really what you're getting at with this, you know, the, the brain is, isn't hardwired for life once you get beyond adolescence. And, and importantly, that was the received view until about 10, 15 years ago. We used to think that once you got past adolescence that the brain was hardwired and incapable of change. Uh, but with these great examples, people like the, the drivers of the black cabs in London, uh, these individuals who spend a lot of time training with spatial navigation and route memorization, and what we see is in these individuals, areas like the hippocampus, which is critical for memory and spatial navigation, is, is larger. Uh, and the bottom line, what we do with our brains and how we engage them, uh, not only can we get better at a given skill, but we can literally reshape the physical landscape of the brain itself. Uh, but coming back to this idea about hard work, what we see is in the case of those drivers of the black cabs in London, uh, they train for a very long time. Uh, and so we see any sort of long-lasting change is the sort of change that comes through that repeated practice, through that dedication. Uh, but that said, you know, some of the uh, more recent work has shown that you can get neuroplastic changes actually on fairly short time scale. Things like learning how to juggle, uh, you can see changes in, in density of uh, the outer, outer covering of the brain, the cortex, uh, regions of the cortex, you can see these structural changes within fairly short time courses. Um, so we know that what we do can have an effect early on, but if we want to have long-lasting change, that's where it takes the hard work and the dedication. I'm intrigued by the degree to which the Internet has become a part of this story, both sometimes being compared to how our brain works, but also seeming to present a variety of new circumstances that, that feel as though they're almost sort of reshaping how we use our brains. Um, when you think about the impact of the Internet and sort of web culture, do you feel overall that, there, that the positives outweigh the benefits the negatives? Are there specific themes that you look at when you think about interaction with the Internet? Well, I think overall what the Internet has brought 
to us is uh, access to information that we never had before. And access to information is a good thing. From an educator's point of view, that's what we want. We want people to have access to that information, especially when that information can be used in, in positive ways. Uh, you know, so the, on the upside, our ability to learn, our ability to look things, you know, within a moment's notice, I think that's all, you know, hugely beneficial. Uh, our ability to communicate with people around the world, you know, it's, uh, to be honest, kind of inspiring when you put up that <laughs> map of the world and you see people joining in from all over the world in this conversation that we're having tonight even. Uh, so our ability to make those connections, again, about disseminating information, about taking good ideas and, and spreading them quickly, the Internet's been very, very valuable. I think part of maybe what you're hinting at with how it's changed the way that we use our brains in large part is, again, also about communication. So you'll hear things about, you know, Facebook and social media and the fact that we spend all of our time communicating with each other through a computer rather than with face-to-face -face interaction. And there probably is some uh, downside to that. You know, face-to-face -face social interaction is obviously very valuable. Um, so overall, I'm not sure that I would necessarily put a, a value judgment that one part's good, one part's bad, uh, but instead just looking at what we have available to us and, you know, in many ways, needing to adapt to that and looking for ways to make the best use of technology uh, and the Internet, uh, but also being mindful and, and being aware of those situations in which maybe it won't have uh, the best benefit. So making sure that we still get out and have that face-to-face -face interaction with friends and neighbors and things like that. You mentioned the, uh, the work that Gary Small has done in looking at brains when they're searching the Internet. Now, I'm going to tell you how I interpreted that, and I'm curious to see if I'm even close to what your sort of scientific perspective would be. So these were brain scans done of people who had developed patterns of searching on the Internet. I think this was not new first-time searchers, but people who were used to searching on the Internet, and it showed high levels of activity. And I feel as though my, my brain's actually changed because of my ability to search through and weave through different topics on the Internet in such a way that I even read books differently now. I think I'm a, a more proactive reader of any material, not just the Internet. Do you think I've interpreted that correctly, or how would you interpret that? Well, certainly what, you, what you're saying makes sense. Uh, the whole idea about neuroplasticity, this coming back to what I said about the way that you engage your brain can literally reshape your brain, uh, it makes sense. If you're, you know, using a mode of thought all the time as you search through the Internet, as you think about ways to access information, that's going to have lingering effects in other ways in which you're acquiring information, and reading a book might be one of those things. Uh, so certainly what we do on a daily basis, how we use technology, how we use the Internet, how we search for information, just being aware that there's even answers. You know, now we can, you know, go and Google something where before we might not have even thought that, you know, there was an answer to the question. And now it's, it's so easy to do that, you know, why not try and, and figure that out? So, yeah, I think your, your interpretation is probably uh, head on, you know, spot on in terms of what we do having a lingering impact. Um, and it's good to hear that, you know, at least from your perspective, that you're finding that that's making you more proactive, that you're getting more out of uh, other forms of uh, media, books, and other sources of information. At the same time, you also address in the book uh, what you call, I've got to make sure I have the right wording here, uh, the double whammy of incompetence. And, and I'm reminded of the Stanford study that showed that those who thought they were the best multitaskers were, in fact, actually the worst. 
Just to what degree is distraction, the distraction of the internet, changing our ability to to be good thinkers? Well, I, you know, I think coming back to this idea about the the double whammy of incompetence, you know, in the in the literature, this is known as the Kruger-Dunning effect, where yeah, exactly. The the people who think that they're uh, the best at something are, are very often, you know, not so good. In fact, really, it's the people who do the worst on any given test. And you ask them, how do you think you've done? Uh, it turns out not only are they not good at that task, but they're they they think that they're doing fine. So the double whammy of incompetence: one, they're incompetent at the task, but they're also incompetent at knowing their limitations. Uh, so where this comes into things like the internet, distractions, uh, technology. Really, I think part of it is that it's about how we use technology, how we use the internet. Um, you know, I, I write a column for the Globe and Mail, the Better Brain column, and one of the columns recently was about uh, asking the question about whether relying on gadgets is making us stupid. Um, and really, this comes down to the fact that if we hand off all of these difficult, mentally challenging tasks, like remembering somebody's phone number or whether or not I've got a meeting at 2 p.m., uh, if we hand all of these things off to technology, these are the sorts of things that require effortful uh, cognitive control, that require working memory, that require me to be able to focus my attention on one thing and uh, resist temptation or to eliminate, excuse me, distraction uh, from other tasks. So we know that, that exercising that cognitive control then makes you stronger, uh, makes you better able to exert cognitive control in situations where you really need it. Um, you know, so on one hand, yeah, we want to be careful if we're handing off all of these uh, activities to to Google, to our iPhone, to different devices. Uh, well, what are we doing to make sure that we're still giving ourselves those mental challenges, that we're still exerting cognitive control and and keeping, you know, using the metaphor of a muscle, keeping those muscles uh, strong, those those cognitive mental muscles, so to speak. Um, and you know, other the counter argument to that is. Well, by me handing off these uh, telephone numbers, dates, things like that, uh, I'm allowing myself to free up those mental resources to be able to deal with things that are truly important. Uh, so instead of having to keep track of my schedule, I can now think about other areas, about cognitive neuroscience and ways to make our brains better. Uh, so, you know, it's not about, I think, at the end of the day, whether technology is good or bad or, you know, having a negative impact, but for each of us to be thinking, well, if I'm handing one activity off, you know, onto my gadget, and what are the other things that I'm doing to make sure that I'm still uh, providing myself with the mental challenges, with that mental exercise that I need to keep sharp in other areas. So I don't want to get too far ahead here because we will get to the, the meat of the book. But, but it occurred to me sort of at the end of the book, I, I, I really enjoyed Dan Ariely's um, What's it called? What's his book? Predic uh, predictably irrational. And one of the things I took away from the book was, to the degree that we're aware of how our brain can often trick us, uh, we sort of supersede that uh, unconscious mistake making. And, and and I left your book feeling very much like. Uh, one of the big takeaways is just an awareness of our ability to actually kind of watch our cognitive functioning, uh, think about how to make it better, and then actually take steps to make it better. Exactly. And I think this is a, a big part of where you talked about the double whammy of incompetence. And that idea really fits in with the whole notion of self-awareness. Uh, the fact that in order for us to you know, improve ourselves, in order to figure out what we need to be more successful, we first have to do that reflection, have that 
uh, assessment, that sense of awareness of what are the things that I'm good at, uh, what are the things that I'm not so good at, what are the things that I need to focus on in terms of improving. Um, and I think that absolutely, you know, fits very well. And a lot of the mental strategies throughout the winner's brain really focus on identifying what are the things that you're good at, what are the things that you're not so good at, seeking feedback. You know, beyond the science that we had in the winner's brain, which was really, you know, from my perspective, uh, is really one of the strengths of the book is making sure that it's science-based. But beyond that, we also interviewed, a, you know, a number of well-known people um, and, you know, people like B.B. King uh, and talking to them about, you know, their successes and the things that fit. And one of, one of the things that struck me from talking with all these people is the extent to which they talked about, you know, seeking feedback, even if it was negative feedback. You know, tell me honestly, how was that performance? Or tell me, you know, did I do okay there? Uh, and really developing fairly thick skins in terms of, you know, just tell me it, you know, like it is so that I know the things to focus on uh, and the things that I need to make better. Meaning, I don't want to be in that double whammy of incompetence. So please tell me. <laughs> please tell me. Exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, the merits of, you know, even if it's a, a little bit painful to hear that you're not quite as good yet at something that you've been practicing, uh, the sting of that, you know, of that news ultimately is going to, you're going to benefit from that. Uh, so you'll be able to go back and, and practice a little bit more or see ways in which you can improve to become more efficient, to become more uh, effective, uh, ways in which you're, you know, not exerting control in the ways that you think that you maybe are. Uh, and that's really critical for, for to be able to, to improve in each of these different areas that we see as being critical for success. So I want to bring up two more kind of elements of the internet technology and culture before we move on. Um, one is that I feel as though there are certain tools that I've started using on the computer that have a symbiotic relationship with my brain functioning. Uh, one is Evernote. It's the ability to sort of keep notes, sort them, catalog them, find them very easily through a search. Um, are, are you sort of noticing that the tools that these sort of new extensions of our brain are reshaping how we think? Well, I, I haven't done any research on that myself, but certainly there are people who, who are looking at these things. Um, and certainly we can see, even if you, you know, forget about the idea about gadgets or technology to begin with, what we know is that, uh, again, how you use your brain, that has an impact. You know, if I'm doing, you know, one task, um, it takes a little while for the brain to get in the groove, so to speak. Uh, a great example that I use for this is when I was a student, you know, I'd study for a few days before an exam. Uh, and it takes a little while to really start making the connections between the ideas. Uh, but it, because you sit there and you're so focused, because it takes a while to get, you know, in many ways that you can think of the brain as like a big ship. It takes a while to get that momentum going for everything to start working and synchronize it you know, in sync. In, uh, in sync, but then the follow-up to that is that it keeps working in that fashion. You, you develop this sort of cognitive style that that keeps going. And the best example of this is after the exam, now that I'm finished, I've done the exam, uh, I'm still thinking about these things. I still wake up in the middle of the night, you know, with this, oh, I've got the solution to this problem. And you're like, you know, I don't even need to really be thinking about this anymore. I'm finished the test, but it just reflects the fact that you know, once we get going in a specific mode of thinking, 
that we adapt to that style and we keep going with that style. So if that's about organizing, you know, sources of information, if that's about finding, you know, a bit of information amongst a bunch of other things, that very well could influence the way that you approach other situations. Um, and probably the, the best carryover to that is when we think about and we talked about the brain as being sort of like a, a muscle and we want to flex that muscle, really, for the most part, when we talk about that muscle, that's really about cognitive control. That's really about any sort of situation where you have to exert effortful, sort of cognitive, deliberate sort of thing. So whether that's about paying attention to uh, one source of information, you're having a conversation with somebody, how do you eliminate distraction, or if you're working, how do you uh, resist the distraction from uh, outside sources. Uh, if it's about working memory, how do you keep one bit of information in mind in the face of all of these other competing bits of information that uh, want access uh, to your what, what you're thinking about. Uh, right down to making decisions in terms of what you're going to eat. If you're trying to eat healthy, uh, how do you resist this other competing signal that we have? Uh, and in many ways, you can think of the brain as being a battleground. We have all of these competing signals and when we talk about cognitive control, this is really about us being able to strategically bias which of those competing signals is going to drive our behavior, is going to form the content of our, of our thoughts and, uh, and um, the thoughts and behavior. And so really this is part of what we're talking about is developing this cognitive control, flexing uh, this muscle, because what we want is carryover effects. So I noticed that somebody uh, on the message on the chat mentioned something about meditation. And meditation is one of these great examples where the task itself, which is really about sitting quietly and practicing control over what you're attending to uh, and exerting control over your emotional response. So you're focusing your attention on one thing and if your attention drifts away, you gently bring it back to what you're trying to focus on in this non-judgmental way. So it's really about practicing attentional control and emotional control. But the thing is that the goal isn't just to get better at meditating. Uh, instead, what we see is these massive carryover effects where now people are better able to regulate their emotional responses to things, they're better able to, uh, to deal with stressful situations, they're better able to focus and pay attention to things, they're better attentional control. Uh, and all of these is because what meditation is doing, uh, it seems, is flexing this cognitive control muscle. So now when you're out in the real world in these situations where you need that cognitive control, whether it's emotional regulation, uh, paying attention to something, concentrating, now you're better able to do that. Yeah, that in particular was fascinating to me because I think you cited research with it who actually shows demonstrable uh, changes in brain size, part size of parts of the brain from meditation. That's right. Uh, Sarah Lazar, before I came to the University of Guelph, I was at Harvard Medical School in Massachusetts General Hospital, and Sarah Lazar is one of the people who I worked with there, uh, and she has done a lot of work with meditation, and especially some of her most recent work I find very compelling uh, with people like uh, Holtzman and all. Um, and so what they show is you bring in people who go to a stress reduction workshop and they learn to do meditation, and you do a scan of their brain before the workshop and a scan of it after. So you're looking at six to eight weeks of practicing meditation for maybe 10, 15, uh, up to half hour a day. Uh, and what you see is an increase in cortical thickness in some areas associated with um, self-awareness. So a big part of meditation is focusing your attention on something. Oftentimes it's something related to the body, your breath. 
something like that. So you see increases in cortical thickness in the insula, which is an area associated with your bodily awareness or self-awareness, uh, and in areas of prefrontal cortex associated with attentional control. Uh, but interestingly, what you see is also a decrease in the density of areas like the amygdala. And this is interesting because we know that one of the consequences of, of stress, of chronic stress, is that when we're stressed, we have this emotional response that that leads to overactivation of the amygdala. So with chronic stress, we see an increase in density of the amygdala. So these people who meditate, they go through the stress reduction workshop, we see a decrease in the density of the, of the amygdala, and importantly, the decrease is associated with the decrease in stress that people experience. So those people who report the greatest decrease in stress in their day-to-day -day life after doing this workshop and learning to meditate, those are the people who see the largest decrease in the density of the amygdala. So part of what meditation is doing is, is reconfiguring the way that you think, reconfiguring, uh, reconfiguring sort of your approach to day-to-day -to -day situations. So instead of reacting in this very emotional, stressed-out response to everything, you're better able to exert control and, uh, and be able to have a measured response to these things. Uh, and it's having changes not only in terms of, you know, their day-to-day -day functioning, their experience of well-being, uh, but also literally in reshaping the physical landscape of the brain itself. So Peggy's asking if the benefit comes only during the meditating, and I think that's the sort of the core story, which is, no, it's not just the meditating, but it appears to have then a measurable effect on certain other kinds of tasks you do at different times, right, Mark? That's right, exactly. That's the, the best part of meditation is that it's not just that you're getting better at meditating, but it's these carryover effects, the fact that in your day-to-day -day life afterwards that you're seeing all of these benefits. Um, and I see Randall's asking about music, whether it's also got uh, similar benefits. And, and music, uh, playing music, actively participating in music also has benefits. Some of the benefits are similar to what you would see with meditation in terms of attentional control. Uh, so we see studies where people who learn to play a musical instrument have better auditory attention, better able to focus in on you know, somebody speaking, let's say, in a noisy crowd would be an example of that auditory attention. Uh, verbal memory, uh, auditory short-term memory, things like that that we see increases with uh, in, in benefits of, of playing music. So there was one more piece from sort of culture that I wanted to, to bring up. I've approached reality shows with an enormous amount of skepticism, but my children and my wife have increasingly exposed me to the cooking shows and the dance shows and American Idol. And I'm intrigued by something, the connection that you helped me to make here, which was that in those shows, I actually see a couple of things that seem to be very key to your work. One of which is I see how hard they work to get the skills, so that they can gain the skills. And the other I see is that they, I, I can watch their reactions, and you can see how certain reactions lead to sort of positive benefits and other reactions lead to negative ones. And intriguingly, after watching these shows, I actually feel like I'm understanding my own brain a little bit better and how I might want to react or respond in circumstances. Well, I think that's a great example. And in fact, in, in The Winner's Brain, when we talk about self-awareness, we start that chapter off by talking about a robot. <laughs> and this robot, Leo, who's, uh, who's built by, by MIT Personal Robotics Lab. Uh, and what's interesting about Leo is that he's one of the first 
uh, robots to be programmed to be socially aware, to be able to, in many ways, simulate the mental state of somebody else. And this is really part of what, what I, I picked up of what you're saying about reality shows is that by watching other people, we can gain some insight about ourselves. And one of the, the critical, you know, new findings in neuroscience that's related to this is, uh, is mirror neurons. So mirror neurons are these uh, neurons that have been discovered. They were first discovered in motor areas uh, in monkeys. And so basically, uh, these were neurons that uh, Rizzolatti and his uh, and colleagues were recording to see what exactly are the neural operations involved in reaching out and grabbing something. And they found these neurons that were selectively tuned to what they thought only respond when the monkey was reaching out and grabbing a piece of food. Uh, but one of the ways that you measure uh, the responses from these neurons is you hook them up to a loudspeaker. So you can hear every time that the neuron fires, it comes across as a click on the, the auditory speaker. And they left the neuron hooked up to the auditory speaker as the research assistant was going about cleaning up. And as he reached out and grabbed the piece of food, this neuron went nuts and started firing. Uh, so basically what they found was this neuron that not only fires when you're doing an action, but also fires when somebody else is doing the, an action. Uh, another way of thinking about it is that every time that you watch somebody else do something, you're mentally simulating or doing the same thing on a mental scale yourself. Uh, and so we can see this as being critical for things like imitative learning. How do you learn something uh, you know, from somebody else? It's always easiest many, many times by watching them, especially if it's something procedural. Um, we watch them do it. Uh, and the reason that that's so much easier for us to do it now is because we've done it on a mental scale already. So it bridges that gap. And so we can see this in terms of learning. We can also see this in terms of emotional responses. When somebody has, you know, uh, something tragic happened to them, we feel sad or we feel, you know, empathy for them. Well, how is it that we have that empathic response is we're simulating what it must feel like as if that's happening to ourselves. Uh, and so where we tie this to self-awareness is that we can learn a lot about ourselves by watching other people by virtue of the fact that by watching them, we're simulating it again as if we're doing it on this mental scale. Uh, and so we can use that as a tool to gain insight on, you know, what kind of a response would I have in this reaction? You know, if the judge is kind of harsh and is mean on one of these shows, how would I feel in that situation? Uh, and I think especially what you said is in how these people respond. You know, do they get upset? Do they pout and storm off stage? Uh, or are they able to take that feedback in a constructive way, find ways to be resilient, bounce back, and to improve? Yeah, I love the growth and improvement uh, that's so visible in those shows. So let's shift a little to education here. Um, my summary of the book would be that, um, that, that, you, that uh, um, using your brain to, res to, to learn how to respond to, to situations and challenges that you face in life um, brings you success, and that uh, we can look at other people who have done this, and we can emulate that behavior in ourselves, and that our, we can learn these skills. So, uh, should this be a part of education? And is it becoming it anywhere in, in your own career? Have you watched uh, any schools try to adopt some of the conclusions from this work in terms of what they actually do in schooling? Well, you know, 
probably the the best connection that I have in terms of of education. I, you know, so I think the the bottom line is, yes, there's educators who are keenly interested in what's going on in terms of neuroscience and the new discoveries that we have, and finding ways for us to be able to apply this in in educational situations. Um, I just spoke uh, last week, I guess just over a week ago, at the Learning in the Brain uh, conference it was in Chicago about the science of student success, and I was very impressed there. Uh, in terms of the conversations that I had with educators afterwards, in terms of their willingness and their enthusiasm for, you know, what is it that we're learning about the brain? How does that reflect on, you know, whether it's, you know, how to teach a math class and reduce math anxiety to uh, how do we deal with disruptive behavior? Uh, one of the things that I talked about was related to self-regulation and this idea that when it comes to, you know, being able to control ourselves, being able to you know, behave in a classroom situation. Uh, again, that's about exerting cognitive control. And one of the things that we know about self-regulation is that that takes effort. That takes, you know, it's difficult. And it takes, literally, it takes brain fuel. Uh, it takes glucose, blood glucose. And so what we see work by people like Roy Baumeister and, uh, and colleagues shows that when we have low blood glucose, that we have, are more susceptible to failures of self-regulation. Uh, and so there was a, a paper that came out just a couple months ago by Shai Danziger and colleagues where they were looking at judges. And when you think about it, judges are people who are professional <laughs> decision makers, people who are masters of self-control. Their job is to be objective and looking at different sources of, of evidence. Uh, and what Danziger and colleagues showed was that when it came to parole cases, uh, the difficult decisions that they had to make, uh, that that was you know, in terms of whether or not somebody should be granted parole, that the amount of time that had elapsed since the last meal uh, critically determined the chances of success for these individuals. So the longer that it had been since a break and, and a meal, the less time that the judges spent considering the case and the less favorable the outcome uh, for the person who was being considered. And the effect was huge. And so part of why I bring this up and why I showed it at the Learning in the Brain conference was to say, look, if judges, these adults who are, you know, masters of self-control, if they're so susceptible to the effect of low blood, blood sugar, the fact that with low blood sugar, without a break, fatigue, that combination really creates failures of self-control, failures of cognitive control. And if judges are that susceptible, well, what about kids in your class who uh, maybe haven't had a decent breakfast that morning? Uh, and not to mention uh, other kids in your class who might already be facing challenges with uh, behavioral control, uh, cognitive control, learning disabilities, things like that. So what about medication? What about the, uh, in the book you discuss how uh, in certain circumstances there was, uh, I can't remember if it was exercise or what it was, but there was actually a reduction in the need for some of the control medications that are typically used with students like Ritalin. Um, it, uh, but on the other side, I, um, other a book side, I really enjoyed was Temple Grandin's book, where she discussed the sort of the liberating aspects of how medication really helped her to kind of get her brain into the right space. How do you feel about medication in this arena? Well, I think coming back to the example that you mentioned in the book, we, we talked about Alison Cameron, uh, and so she's a, an educator in Canada who had uh, a group of students who really were sort of challenging students to deal with and. And she implemented this exercise program. Um, 
So we now know, and in fact, this is one of the things that have had the biggest impact on me personally, and you know, the changes that I've made myself <laughs> as a function of writing uh, the winner's brain and working on it is realizing that physical exercise um, is not just good for the body. It's not just for keeping our heart healthy and making sure that we're not obese and you know diabetes and things like that. But that physical exercise is actually very critical for healthy brain functioning too. Uh, so work by people like Art Kramer at the University of Illinois uh, shows quite quite uh, strong effects that where things like you know cognitive training, doing maybe uh, crossword puzzles, things like this can have uh, benefits in terms of being better at that task. Physical exercise is again one of these things that we can do that has benefits across the board. And so Allison Cameron is that example of someone where by implementing physical exercise in the classroom uh, now found that behavior improved, grades improved, and, and that's where we noted that uh, a lot of the students there uh, no longer needed to be on medication. Coming back to the point about you know, what, how do I feel about medication? You know, I think it's important to emphasize I'm not a, uh, a medical doctor. I, I don't have training or specific expertise there. Uh, but, you know, from my pers limited perspective, that said, I think that there certainly are situations where medication is, is helpful. Um, but I also think that it's important for us to use all of the tools at our disposal. So we don't want to rely only on one thing or another. Uh, so especially when we, you think about uh, some of the cutbacks that we've had in, in education, uh, very often they're geared towards things like physical education and music programs. Uh, these examples that we're finding are, are very critical. What are the best examples that we have of neuroplasticity, the way that people can preserve brain functioning or enhance brain functioning? It's things like playing a, a musical instrument by doing physical exercise. Um, so, you know, I think that's part of what we can use where the research can help to inform what we do in schools, how we uh, make decisions about which things to, which programs to have in place and, and things like that. You know, sort of a fascinating conclusion that might be drawn is that in our desire to increase accountability in test scores, we may be doing away with the, in many schools, with the very things that would actually create improvement. Well, yes, and you know, I, I mentioned a bit about the learning in the brain, and this was certainly one of the sentiments that I heard quite a bit is, you know, we know that taking tests is beneficial. We know just from the, from the memory literature, from the cognitive psychology literature on memory, that uh, one of the best things that you can do to improve your memory for something is to repeatedly test it. The act of retrieval helps you to consolidate and to make a stronger, more durable memory for something. So tests are good. But the standardized tests, where it's not directly related to course content, where it doesn't have the goal, uh, you know, that's specifically about uh, the, the course and the material that's there, um, that doesn't seem to be uh, quite as beneficial. Um, so, yeah, I, I think yeah, some of the policies that uh, that go that have been put in place in many ways, despite our best intentions, can sometimes, like you say, uh, have some neg negative consequences. Okay, well, uh, I, as usual, I have uh, gone down some paths of great interest to me without giving you a chance to really describe the structure and light of the book. But let's do that for a couple of minutes, uh, and then we have some questions. Um, you first describe five brain power tools. Would you like to give an overview of that? 
Sure. Yeah, and just as a brief overview of what the winner's brain is, is basically looking at, well, what does brain science tell us about, you know, people, the brains that excel in, in what we see as being key areas related to success, and then what can we learn from that science that uh, gives us some, some tips about the sorts of things that each of us can be doing to, to enhance our own brain function. Um, and so we talk about these brain power tools, uh, and these are really kind of five elements that we see as being critical for success, regardless of what your definition of success is. And we don't have a set definition that, you know, it's about earning money or about getting straight A's. It's, we realize that each individual has their own personal goals, their own personal objectives, things that they would like to accomplish. Uh, and the brain power tools, and we talk about the win factors after, we see these as really being critical regardless of what your goal is or what you see as being successful. So the brain power tools, we talk about things like your ability to recognize opportunities. Uh, we see that as being really critical, uh, you know, and a lot of times that those opportunities aren't necessarily uh, dressed up as, here's a great opportunity, come take advantage of me. Uh, you know, there's great examples. We're not the first to note, but people like George DeMestrel, you know, the inventor of Velcro who has these thistle burrs stuck on his socks after a hike and on his dog after a hike in the mountains. Uh, and instead of just being annoyed like, you know, many of us would, uh, instead he sees this as, uh, as an opportunity. He has an insight about the way to take advantage of this. Um, so recognizing opportunities, uh, being able to have optimal risk, being able to say, okay, here's an opportunity, but what are the risks that are involved? Uh, there's a whole field now that's developed of neuroeconomics. And neuroeconomics is really all about being able to uh, evaluate a situation. What are the pros? What are the costs? Uh, what are the, the, the pros, the cons, the costs, the benefits? Uh, and we need to be able to assess these things when we go in. So we talk about areas like, you know, the nucleus accumbens, the, the ventral striatum in terms of evaluating potential re rewards of a situation. And where neuroeconomists are really interested in about, about this is, you know, what are the brain neural processes that are uh, going on when we decide whether to buy or sell a stock or whether as consumers we buy product A or product B. Um, you know, but really the same principles go into any of the decisions that we make. We come to every situation where we evaluate something. You know, even if it's something like, you know, I talked about this natural aversion to expending energy. It's always been a bit of a mystery for me why, and I mentioned that exercise is one of these things that I was really impressed with writing the book, so I started to, to run. Uh, and when I'm running, I, I love it. Uh, it's a very rewarding experience. I get in this little zone. I'm free from a lot of, you know, the, the stresses of day-to-day -day life. But <laughs> before I go running, when I think, oh, I should really go for a run tonight, you know, the thought of, of running can be quite aversive, even though the act of running itself can be uh, quite rewarding. So what is it about the thought of running that's so aversive? And I think it comes down to this thing that we don't want to needlessly expend energy. So part of the evaluation of whether I go running or not is to remind myself of those benefits. And so this is part of when we talk about optimal risk, you know, not just for running, but for any sort of situation. We have to take risks when it comes to being successful. If you don't take risks, if you don't get into what psychologists talk about as a promotion focus, but instead if you're always seeking safety uh, and avoiding risk, uh, then we don't get anywhere. So that's part about optimal risk. Uh, we talk about locking on to goals. Uh, and this is really in part about, you know, what are the goals that we have? We talked about self-awareness a little bit earlier, uh, and we talked about success as being kind of personal to, to everybody having their own objectives. 
Uh, but a key part of this is, well, what is it that you want to achieve? So often we see that we can get, you know, uh, in the rut of our day-to-day -day lives, going in a routine without thinking, well, what's the bigger objective here? What exactly is it that we want to, uh, to accomplish? So self-awareness helps for that. And then once we have those goals, what are the things that we need to do to be able to, uh, to lock on to them and to keep going, whether that's in the face of adversity and things uh, like that? So effort accelerator is another one which is about motivation. Talent meter, again, fits into the idea about uh, self-awareness, uh, learning the things that we're good at, but also identifying those things that we're not so good at. Uh, and so that wraps up those, those brain power tools that, again, just what we see as being critical elements for, uh, for achieving any of the objectives that a person might have. So the balance of the book then goes in depth into uh, eight what you call win factors. So how do those tools relate to the win factors? Well, so each of the brain, each of the, the win factors, these are really what form each of the individual chapters. Uh, and so we can see things like the talent meter fitting in the first uh, of the win factors is self-awareness. We've talked quite a bit about self-awareness already, about that learning about yourself. Um, learning about yourself through uh, watching other people. Um, another of the win factors is motivation. You know, so what is it that we're learning about the brain uh, in terms of what drives behavior? And a lot of this has to do with this system within the brain, uh, the dopamine, uh, mesolimbic dopamine system, uh, that also involves part that we mentioned in terms of neuroeconomics, like the ventral striatum that helps us to evaluate potential reward, potential costs of things. Um, Focus, attention uh, is another one of the, the factors. So when we talk about locking onto goals, a big part of that is about being able to focus uh, and resist being dis distracted and resist being uh, interrupted by other things going on. Um, and one of the key things when it comes to focus is um, I, I noticed somebody had a question about what's going on in the brain when we get in the groove, when we get into that kind of flow state. And a big part of this is related to the idea about focus. And where it's related is that sometimes we can focus too hard on something. Uh, we talked about cognitive control. Uh, we know that with attention, we can have either a fairly broad focus where we're able to take in lots of details uh, in our surroundings, or we can have a very narrow focus. And sometimes when it comes to solving a problem, it's not the narrow focus where we're really strongly focused on one thing, but instead it's where we need to broaden our focus a little bit. Uh, so one, one story or one observation, I guess, that's related to this is, uh, you know, it always struck me, yeah, I've got, you know, a research lab, I've got an office, I've got thousands of dollars of equipment that's really, I'm a professor, it's really dedicated to coming up with good ideas. Uh, but, and I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit the amount of time that I spend staring at my computer screen really having this kind of block. And yet, when I wake up in the morning, I jump in the shower, I'm amazed at this sort of stream of consciousness that I have, this flow of, of thinking, where I can, in the course of five minutes, plan my day, have some insight on some problem that's been bothering me. So it, it always kind of, you know, intrigued me, like, what exactly is it about the shower? Why do my best ideas come up in the shower? And in part, it's because the shower is one of those situations where there's nothing really demanding. I don't have to focus very hard on any of the given tasks that I have. So I'm able to relax. I'm able to broaden my focus a little bit. And so we know that parts of the brain, it's actually called the default network, 
sort of what is the brain doing when it's not doing anything else, when it's not actively engaged in a cognitively demanding task. And parts of that default network are critical for associative processing, for being able to make connections between things that otherwise you might see as being unrelated. So that's where we have great insight and sort of creativity or in these situations where we can relax a little bit and release some of that cognitive control for those areas of the brain to become more active and start making those associations. So when we talk about flow state or getting into the groove, uh, we can see examples of this in, in improvisation. So a great study by uh, Charles Lim and, uh, and his colleague looked at people who are doing who, jazz musicians who improvise in the scanner. And what they found is those situations where they're improvising, which is really composing on the fly, um, compared to a situation where they're just playing a, a tune wrote by memory, uh, is that you have a decrease in activity in regions uh, of the brain associated with cognitive control and increases in activity in some of these areas associated with this default network. Uh, and so really what we see is in that flow state is turning down some of that cognitive control and allowing some of these other areas to become more active. Uh, and so part of that is what we talk about in this focus chapter. Um, the other brain factor we talk about, this win factor, is about emotional balance. We've talked again a little bit about the idea about, about emotional balance as it re relates to self-regulation, um, but also how, you know, uh, our ability to look at a situation, the critical role of things like reframing. So, you know, Jeff Brown is the other author on, on the book. Uh, where I'm the cognitive neuroscience, I, you can think of me, I guess, as more of the brain guy on the book. Jeff Brown is a cognitive behavioral psychologist. Uh, so he spends his days helping people to think about situations in different ways. Uh, and this is really part of this is about reframing. So what we see is approaching a, a situation instead of responding in a very emotional uh, way is to be able to look at it in a, a new way, uh, can literally reconfigure the patterns of activation that we have in the brain. So changing, uh, if it's a stressful situation, being able to look at it in, a, in more objective terms, uh, now we downregulate the activity in areas like the amygdala. Um, so emotional balance, uh, memory is another one of the win factors. We talk about things like um, the critical role of memory, where in the past we've thought about memory as being critical for reminiscing about, you know, Sunday dinners at grandma's house or things in the past. And really, the shift that we've had really over the last four or five years in thinking about memory not as something that allows us to think about the past, but instead as something that helps to prepare us for the future. So we have this critical overlap in regions of the brain that uh, are involved in thinking about the past and also that help us to anticipate or to imagine or to simulate what's going on in the future. So really, it's about memory as being able to you know, take our past experience and now we can apply it to new situations through analogy that help us to anticipate what's going to happen in, in this uh, in new situation so we're prepared for it and best, best able to, to handle it. So that's part of what we talked about with, uh, with memory. Uh, resilience, being able to bounce back in the face of failure. Um, you know, how do you take a, a situation where you've made a mistake or an error, learn from those mistakes, being able to move on, uh, how people who are low in resilience, they really have difficulty disengaging from their mistakes. Uh, a great example we talk about is uh, work by Christian Wah and colleagues, 
where uh, you split people up into high and low resilience using a, a psychometric scale, a psychological scale that uh, identifies high and low resilient people. And now you present these people with a cue that gives them some information that says so if you see a square, that means you have a 50% chance of either seeing a really nasty image uh, or something that's affectively neutral. And in the face of that cue, everybody has an increase in activation of areas like the amygdala, and that's a natural stress response. It helps us to deal with things that are going on in our surroundings. But what they noticed was that the people with, who are high, highly resilient, as soon as the image turned out to be a neutral image, there really was no problem, they very quickly came back down to baseline in terms of their uh, response in areas like the amygdala and uh, insula, these stress-related areas, where the low-resilient people their brain activation just kept, you know, kept being ramped up <laughs> for quite a long time. Uh, and when I read this paper, it really resonated well with me because I, I know people like this. Uh, you know, it's you almost get in a car accident or something, and instead of saying, oh, wow, that was close, we need to be, you know, a little bit more careful in how we drive, they spend the next 15 minutes going, oh, my goodness, I can't believe we almost got in the accident. Can you imagine what would have happened if we would have gotten in that accident? That would have been so important. They spend the time focused on what almost happened instead of being able to recognize it for what it is and move on. So that's part of what we talk about in the resilience uh, win factor. Adaptability really is a big part of that is the idea about neuroplasticity, which we've talked about quite a bit. And then brain care. What are the things that we need to do in terms of how we eat? how we sleep, uh, how we feed the brain, mental stimulation, things like that that help us to keep our brains working at their very best. So, and so between this, and just the, the last thing to, to mention here about the book is, you know, the key piece is about the science. What's the latest neuroscience telling us about the brains of people who work well in terms of self-awareness, motivation, focus? Then what are the mental strategies that each of us can do to make our brains work a little bit better? But then we also have these interviews with, with uh, you know, fairly well-known people, as well as just what we call winners next door, uh, examples of people who are clearly successful, even though, even though they might not be that well-known, uh, to illustrate sort of the science in action. So for me, kind of the great takeaway was that um, we have a lot more capability to uh, determine how to use our brains and improve their function that uh, the science is backing up uh, you know, a lot of what we have sort of culturally believed, um, although there have been cultural beliefs sort of against that, but the positive beliefs about our ability to change and, uh, and make improvements. And then in a lot of ways, the, the, for me, the most powerful role of an adult in an education or family situation is helping to model those improvements in how you respond to life and, and how you sort of actively care for, you know, feed and care for and grow your brain. So I really appreciate the book. Um, you know, we're, we're right at the top of the hour, so I'm going to start clapping for you. Um, I, I, there was a comment, I think David in the chat said, um, you know, I'm going to run out and buy this book. I'm sure that's the exact kind of thing you want to hear. I really enjoyed the book. I, uh, I love the ideas, and I really appreciate your coming on and talking to us about them. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be here, and I appreciate the invitation, and yeah, I, I think it's an exciting time in terms of neuroscience, what we're learning about the brain. Again, this is a big motivation for me in, in writing the book is, you know, we're learning all of these things, and you can see the direct applicability for for day-to-day -day life. And this is a big motivation for me is to be able to get the word out. So uh, so I'm thrilled that people have been able to come on and uh, and 
and be a part of this conversation. Thank you, Mark. While I'm closing up, if you would like, feel free to put links in the chat for your website. There's a website for the Winter Spring book, and if you're uh, interested in having people contact you, an email address. Coming up on the Future of Education on Thursday, Chris Giobo on the Art of Nonconformity. The next week, Steve Denning on Radical Management and Sir Ken Robinson on Out of Our Minds. Uh, thanks so much to Mark for uh, being here tonight. The book is The Winner's Brain, Eight Strategies, Great Minds Used to Achieve Success. Terrific conversation and uh, so significant in education. I hope we have more of these. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Mark. Okay, so our commitment is to let you go right on the hour. You've taken an hour and we want to make sure we're respectful of your time. Uh, so for those of you who'd like to stick around for additional chat, we'll stay in the room for a few minutes. Otherwise, Mark, uh, I really appreciate your participating tonight, and um, have a great evening. Thanks again, and I hope everybody has a good night. Take care. So that was really fun, and uh, we didn't get to a lot that's in the book, so I hope that you'll consider picking it up. Uh, there were some pieces we didn't talk about that were fascinating to me, and I would have loved to have talked a little bit more about autism. Um, because I think um, you know there there were bits and pieces in the book, especially about facial facial recognition and recognition of emotions, that I think would be interesting. Uh, and that's a topic I think we're going to continue to to see in education and see more uh, commenting about. There's also the deliberate practice piece, which has been in so many of the interviews, from um, the talent code to um, the genius within all of us and the like. So this whole um, you know question of deliberate practices, um, you know, clearly becoming a, a meme, you know, a, a thought within the educational world which is worth uh, talking about. I'm particularly interested in sort of how we in many ways seem to be moving away from the kinds of practices that, that are implied by the book or specifically recommended in the book and, um, and where schools are kind of bucking the trend and doing this and I'm, I'm guessing it's largely in private or or, or independent schools. Has anybody got any comments on that or where you're seeing uh, these kind of practices implemented in positive ways in education? Feel free to grab the mic. I'm just going to give everybody mic control. You can turn your mic on or you can put it on the chat. Yeah, there's this fascinating degree to which we're almost sort of shooting ourselves in the foot by wanting more achievement but having to do away with the things that might actually allow it. Larry, feel free just to turn your mic on. I've given you, I've given everybody mic control. Do that by clicking on the microphone at the lower left of your screen. And I am seeing that you some kind of a mic issue. So there you go. Mic issue, so. Okay, can you hear me now? There you go. Okay, anyway, one of the people I've been reading or studying is a researcher out of Stanford called Dr. Carol Dreck and she has a, a website called Brainology where she's implementing some of these same uh, ideas for uh, elementary school children to help them understand their brain as a prelude to understanding school subjects and how to study. So it would uh, be really interesting to read some of her stuff. She has a book out called Mindset as well as her website. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Larry. Go ahead and turn your mic off because we're going to echo. There we go. So Carol's actually been on the show to talk about mindset. 
And um, if you go to futureofeducation.com and look on the past interviews, there is an interview with her. I agree. And, and Carol ends up getting quoted by many, many people. Uh, I don't think she's mentioned specifically in um, The Winner's Brain, but, but uh, I, probably, I probably read her name once a week in some kind of material. Oh, thanks for the link there. There's also a, a new book out called Moonwalking with Einstein about a guy who decides to become a memory expert, which I haven't read but have heard a little bit about. And I, you know that along with the Polger sisters, the, the whole this chess family story that gets told a lot, really is an argument for the ability to become capable in an area which we previously thought was a natural skill, not necessarily an acquired one. One fun thing that um, Mark talks about in the book is uh, having a failure role model. <laughs> I have to say, mine is Abraham Lincoln. You know, just this idea that uh, you know you can be resilient, and um, you know that we're not. Uh, you know, failure is not a sign that we're defective. Uh, which in, yeah, I, I'm also I'm in the dangerous situation of reading. Um, I'm listening to John Taylor Gatto's book, An Underground History of American Education. And uh, the, you know it's so interesting to kind of hear him describe the degree to which we don't recognize how much the educational system was originally built on has been perpetuated by this belief that most people aren't smart, and the, you know that ultimately the goal of the system is to is just identify the smart ones because the rest are not smart or defective. And I, I've never thought of it in those sort of stark negative terms, but. Um, very interesting to think about how we flee from failure for fear that it shows that we're one of the defective ones. You know, one thing I would love to, you know, it would be fun to have Mark come back on the show, but the other piece I didn't get to, to get to was the whole Strengths Finders piece. Um, those of you who maybe heard Jennifer Fox talk about her school and um, you know, your child's strengths and finding finding strengths and working on them. Kind of an interesting parallel track here. Um, not sure entirely how it relates, but knowing that uh, you know there's probably a lot of overlap in the two different ways of thinking about education. You know, and he didn't mention it, but in his brain care um, section or chapter, you know, he does talk about sleep and. You know, sort of the intriguing degree to which you know our brains don't you know, we we need that sleep and um, it's sort of very interesting. I almost feel as though if you focused on and I'm really fascinated about this conference that he went to. I need to find out more about that. But that if you focused on uh, the brain as sort of the the driving um, idea behind an educational structure. You know, how would you design your work, knowing that you know you're both willing to provide for like the right amount of opportunities for sleep and for exercise and the like, but also knowing the brain needs challenges, and 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 providing really disciplined challenges so that uh, there is growth. I think it would be kind of fun to, to map that out. Well, nobody else is talking, although there is some commenting in the chat, but. Um, if anybody else has anything to say, please feel free to take the mic or put it in the chat, and we'll wrap up in a couple of minutes. Steve, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Um, 
this is Dave McGavick. Um, it seems to me that we're so bent on production, and and you say this, and a lot of the people you interview talk about this is is how bent we are on uh, assessment and and counting achievement. Um, it just doesn't seem like there's uh, much chance for a lot of these principles to get uh, incorporated into a lot of our schools. I was thinking that it, uh, you talk about the Declaration for Education. It'd be interesting to include these principles uh, as kind of founding founding pieces of a declaration. Yeah, I saw that note uh, in the chat. Just a thought. I appreciated it. No, it's a great thought. Um, I've actually had an interesting, you know, if you're if you're tired of this conversation, please feel free to log off. And I, but I'm going to move forward, knowing that we're, we're past our hour and we can take some liberties here. So the idea was is to have a an event after EduBloggerCon on Saturday night for us to kind of create a declaration of education, do a future search or visioning of education. I spent some time the other day kind of mapping out how you would create a day in a community where you would do a series of exercises to kind of help people create that vision for education or their own personal education declaration. And it came to the conclusion that the the best way to do that would be to create a framework and a structure with a certain number of ideas where people could indicate their you know, their own particular set of ideas that at the end of the day they could then pick and choose and create their own personal education declaration. So they could walk away from the day either as a parent or a teacher or a student saying, this is now how I'm personally going to measure the activities that I'm involved in in education. And felt really powerfully better better about that than creating a single declaration. So I'm really curious uh, to know your response to that and to, you know, does, does that actually resonate with you as well? Well, it certainly puts uh, a lot more responsibility on the individual, <laughs> which in some ways it makes it more challenging, but it's probably more real that way. Um, it would be, uh, I guess, when I hear you speak of uh, education, declaration, I think of some sort of statement of principles that um, that the people who listen to your interviews, the people who are represented through this conversation might uh, form uh, their thoughts, but that could be done with what you're describing, uh, it, but then it would be more personal, and I think that's great. Well, so one of the thoughts I've had is that I've watched this sort of reform movement and the dialogue or lack thereof between uh, the reformers and traditionalists or even between reformers. And I think, um, you know, KIPP believes, you know, the KIPP people believe they're reformers. The Teacher America believe they're reformers. You know, uh, Diane Ravitch is a believes she's a reformer. I think the surprising sort of piece to this for me is recognizing that that sort of reform movement is in fact in its, uh, in and of itself very splintered with widely divergent views. So I came to the sort of the, the conclusion that it would be really hard to actually create a, a declaration of education that would encompass everybody's beliefs. But if you created a way at a grassroots level for people to, to set up their own definitions, their own education declarations that then could guide their own decision making, that you've offered them sort of broad set of principles they could pick and choose from, the ones that they're comfortable with, where nobody has to buy into the whole thing. And this actually goes back to 
a, a session I did at COSIN where they tried to draft a document that everybody would agree on, and it became clear to me very quickly that the, I wasn't sure there was actually value in everybody agreeing on everything and was sort of looking for an alternate way. So again, any thoughts here would be most appreciated. Ruth, I'm really interested in your comments there in the chat. Will there be a way for people to participate in in that event, Steve, uh, uh, online if they're not available to be in Pennsylvania? So yeah, I'm, um, I'm not sure we'd be able to do it that particular night. And I'm not actually going to be leading that night when um, uh, Bernie Jean Porter is. And I'm not sure that she even agrees with me. And so I'm just going to let her do her thing. She does something called a future search. But the one I'm thinking of, I actually think we could do online. There's a separate event uh, the same way that we've talked about it. And I'm, um, I'm renting space here in Sacramento uh, in uh, June to hold one here locally, to just advertise locally to friends and families and parents and educators to say, hey, come. I want to try this out and see what it's like, and then use that as a model that you could actually sort of give to people to do in their own a local areas with their own results. And, um, and so if, if that ends up being working, <laughs> you know, then the whole, this, the whole idea or the whole intent is to share it um, and to have your own local experience. But yeah, I'd love to do a, uh, one online, and then um, I'm going to try and do a physical one as well. OK, so it sounds like we may have exhausted our time. But I uh, really appreciate uh, you all being here. Loved um, that, that chat with Mark. And I uh, hope you'll tune in another night. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Peggy. Peggy, always the positive. Most appreciated. Bye, everybody.